0: Let's pray together. Our God, we come to you this morning as we always do in need of your grace and help to hear your word and understand your word. Uh, Our hearts are callous and they are hard at times, and so we need you to soften our hearts that we might hear. Uh, We pray that you might encourage us with your word, that you might convict us with your word, that you might even heal us this morning as we consider your word. Um, We pray that you would cause our hearts and lives to be transformed. Oh God, we need you to speak, not man, not the opinions of man. We need God's word. And so we ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Sadmal Road, uh, today we are talking about sex. And I don't know how I drew the shortest straw to get this sermon, but here we are. Here I am, and we're going to have the talk today. All right? There's a reason we sent your kids up, and so hopefully today will be an encouragement to you. Um, as we consider this topic of sex. My only hope is that my parents who rarely come here won't show up all of a sudden. If they do, just FYI, I'm calling an audible, we're gonna go to Revelation or Job or something because I can't look them in the face and preach this sermon. Uh, All jokes aside, it did did make me wonder this past week, uh, why is it that there is this sense of embarrassment and awkwardness and unease when we consider the topic of sex, right? Uh, because let's be real, we all know that we engage at some level uh, in sex. Some of you have. In fact, there's a 100 witnesses upstairs to show that fact, right? We have kids, and there's all kinds of things that we are involved in, in in these kinds of relationships. So it's no secret to any of us, and yet it's one of these things that cause embarrassment and unease. I can sense the unease in you right now. Trust me, I'm I'm not happy about this, right? This is a hard thing to talk through. And yet God's word actually has a lot to say to us about sex. Uh, When we start talking about sex, we tend to see it through a few different lenses, right? Our eyes are colored in the ways that we see this. Uh, For instance, uh, one of those lenses that we see sex through is that sex is dirty, right? That it's sort of defiling. Uh, In fact, this kind of a view would probably be what you hear And experience often in the church itself, right? Uh, Especially if you were exposed to sort of a a hyper form of uh, Christianity that was uh, was never talk about sex, that was embarrassed of it. If you grew up in that kind of environment, uh, sex was dirty. It was defiling. It was embarrassing. Uh, It's like I heard one pastor say this week. In the church, we talk very little about sex. But when we do, we say that it's filthy. We say that it's dirty. We say that it's disgusting. So, hey, save it for the one that you love, right? There's this, there's this nature in which we say, this thing is disgusting, it's awful, but hey, make sure you save that thing for the one person that you love and you're going to spend the rest of your life with. It's bizarre. It's like whiplash. You've got to feel one way and then immediately feel the other about this topic. Uh, sex is almost treated like this necessary evil for procreation. That's the only purpose of it. It's just purely functional. And if you ever did talk about it, you're going to talk about it in whispers. And there's going to be an air of shame about it when you talk, right? Christians in the world are viewed as prudish. God is actually viewed as some grumpy old man up in heaven who doesn't want you to enjoy sex, think about sex, talk about sex. There's all these rules and prohibitions on sex. Uh, In fact, in another way, churches it can be a really difficult place to actually talk about sex, especially when it's so taboo, especially when in our own lives we've experienced the brokenness of sex. Uh, Or worse, it could feel condemning for us within the church. Right? We don't often think about sex and the church and religion as things that are very compatible. Right? Another lens that you might consider the way that we see sex is that sex is nothing, that it's cheap, Right? Sex is dirty, but then sex is just nothing. It's not even dirty, it's nothing. And I think this is the way that we, in our culture, in our city, in our world, often think about sex today. Uh, To give you an idea of what I mean, in 2017, USA Today published a study that was done among thousands of people to consider some of their thoughts behind sex. The study was done among mainly millennials, and this is what some of it revealed. It showed that millennials believe it is more intimate to go on a first date than to have sex. Right, hear that? It's more intimate to go on a first date than to have sex. It showed that 34% of all singles have, have sex even before their first date. Uh, you know those awkward first date conversations like, what kind of food are you into, you know, where'd you grow up? All those uneasy conversations, it's, it's harder to do that and take your clothes off in front of someone you've never met before, that's where our, our age is today. That, that sex is actually nothing. There are harder things like just the awkwardness of a first date that's, that's harder than to have sex, right? And, and so there is this, this loss of worth. Uh, the study showed that apparently, you know, watching, it's, it's sort of like likened like to Netflix or eating some ice cream. It's nothing more than that. Sex is nothing. It's an appetite that needs to be satisfied, right? It is this commodity that needs to be procured, a biological bodily function that needs to be fulfilled. It's just sex. That's all it is. And what we have done over time, right? We dehumanize this thing and we reduce this thing and we lose its glory and its mystery and its beauty. Sex is nothing. A third way we might see sex it's sort of the other side of the coin, that sex is everything. It's ultimate. It's pinnacle. It's peak. It's everything worth pursuing in life. It's the opposite side of the coin. If you go on Amazon and you search for books on sex, you will find nearly 200,000 books on Amazon alone on sex, most of them on Better Ways How to Have It and to Fulfill Your Life With It. Sex and sexuality have become so core right, to our reality as people, Uh, that to restrict it or to confine it, if you were to do that to me, you would be taking away my personhood, my integrity, my identity as a person. Uh, We can't live without it. It, it, We need it. We want sex how we want it, when we want it, with whom we want it, period. No questions asked. No one can ever tell me otherwise. Sex is everything. Uh, Because what are some of the mantras of our age today? Right, It's to follow your heart, Uh, be true to yourself, pursue your truth, pursue your happiness. And there is no greater good in the world than to seek out your sexual pleasure. We're defined by this thing. In fact, sex has become for many of us in this world, at times for us, like a God that we lift up high above everything else. In fact, we'll trample on other people to get it, we'll dehumanize one another to Acquire it, even hurting people and wounding people to get that. And, and some of us have felt the difficulty of that. And so, on the one hand, we'll say, Sex is nothing, it's just sex, get over it. On the other hand, maybe even the same person you would say, actually, it's everything. I need it to fulfill me. I need it to identify me. It's everything to me. And it's so ironic that we would say in the same breath, sex is nothing. And yet, It's everything. Do you see the insanity of this? And perhaps you're wondering with me, whether you're a Christian or not, is there a better way to consider sex? Is there a a better way to consider this that doesn't have to be dirty, that doesn't have to be nothing, that doesn't have to be everything? Is there not another lens through which we can see sex? Listen, I know uh, going to the Bible isn't the immediate thought you would have for sexual advice, right? And yet, I want to say that the Bible, God, has this beautiful picture for sex. It may surprise you that it holds higher weight than any book you could buy on Amazon. And get this, it's actually not to impede on your joy or to remove uh, delight and pleasure and all of those things that we often associate religion with or Christianity with. In fact, God's view of sex is for your immense joy and good. So, if sex isn't dirty, nothing or everything, what is it? What does the Bible have to say about sex? That's what we're considering today. And I'm well aware that this is one sermon. This isn't going to solve everything that, you know, would, would have to be said. We can't do it. But we want to at least take a couple of uh, truths away today as we consider God's Word. So, how we'll approach it is we're going to listen to two truths from the Bible. And then as a result of those two truths, two tensions from the Bible as a result of that, right? Two truths and then two tensions regarding sex. Uh, We're going to be bouncing around a bit in the Bible today. So we're going to camp out mainly in the passage that Lauren read for us, 1 Corinthians 6 and 7. Uh, But we're going to be bouncing around a bit as we move through this. So it's on page 955 in the Black Bibles in front of you. You can turn with me there if you're not there yet. All right, so the first of two truths that we want to be considering about sex is simply that sex is good. Sex is good. Uh, In the second half of 1 Corinthians 6.13, it says this, The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Okay, I think when we read that verse, right, it's hard to imagine that sex is good since Paul immediately starts talking about sexual immorality. Right, that, I, I don't imagine that many of us would look at that verse and say, okay, I get how sex is good, because we'll read that and in our minds go, well, God must hate sex. Uh, he must be displeased with sex. When in reality, can I tell you, there is no one in the world who is more for your sexual life than God. There's no book, there's no philosopher, there's no counselor, there's no friend, there's nobody, not even your spouse, who's more for your sex and the health there than for God's concern over that. And we've got to hear that because we quickly turn off religion and the Bible and God. But would you hear, God is more for your sexual good than anybody else in the world. Why? Because get this, God has actually created you this way. He's wired you this way. Uh, He created our bodies for sexual pleasure. He created with purpose All the organs, all the neuroreceptors, all of the chemicals for all of this to work in your body. That that wasn't a mistake. Uh, When you go to the first book of the Bible, Genesis, in the beginning, right? What do you see there? God creates everything in the world and he creates man and woman, right? And when you read Genesis 2.25, it says that this man and woman were both naked before one another without any separation between them. And what's more, they were unashamed. They were naked and unashamed. Uh, You almost want to weep at this because of the purity here, the beauty here that is so different from what sexual shame and sexual guilt feels like in our world, the brokenness of our world. Uh, Listen, it's beautiful here. It's joyful. It's pure. It's not as if God made Adam and Eve and then went somewhere else and then they started having sex and God was like, what are you doing? No, he created this thing. Like he's the one who initiated this. It's good. And there's no verse 26 in Genesis 2. There's no verse 26. But I heard one pastor say this week, I can assure you they weren't just picking apples all day right? They weren't just strolling through the garden looking for the next fruit to pluck. They were doing more than picking apples in that garden. I mean, they're naked. They're unashamed. Of course, they're not just picking apples, right? In fact, uh, God is not scared to go there, even though we might be, even though we may not think he is, God is not scared to go there. In fact, he's created an entire book. He has inspired an entire book dedicated to this thing. In fact, he does it in dramatic faction, dramatic faction and he actually recorded it in the middle of the Bible, Song of Solomon. This book, vividly, almost uncomfortably, almost goes too far in talking about sex and the glory of it and the, the detail of it. I mean, it, it's surprising that this is in the Bible. You wonder if God made a mistake with this and yet he hasn't. He's inspired this. And listen, in the, song, in the book, The Song of Solomon... What's surprising is that it's not even about procreation. It's not even about function. Uh, There's actually no mention of any of that in the whole book. You can barely look uh, look at this book, read this book, and look at each other in the eyes when you're reading it because that's how vivid it is. That's how in-depth this thing goes. In fact, some Jewish traditions, you were not allowed to, as a teenage boy, even to be able to read this book because of how vivid it was. You had to be late into your teenage years because of the content of this book right? In this book, we are sort of invited into the honeymoon suite of this man and woman who just got married, husband and wife, the night of their wedding, right? We'll read through some portions of Song of Solomon. In 416, this is what the wife says. This is sort of a dialogue between the wife and the husband, and then some onlookers. All of this interplay is happening. This, in verse four, uh, chapter 416, it starts with the wife, and she says, Awake, O north wind and come o oh, south wind blow upon my garden let its spice flow let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruit all of you immature little kids are giggling right now i can i can hear a little bit right but guess what that's not even the worst of it that's nothing this is how solomon responds what does he say i came to my garden which is just an interesting imagery just in itself. My sister, my bride, I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. And That's not the worst of it either. It gets worse. You'll get more uncomfortable. Trust me. I promise you that. But here's what Solomon is doing, right? Here's what this book is doing. They are likening this intimate sexual encounter with one another to the tastiest, most wonderful foods they can imagine. Even look at the words that they are using, right? There's fruit, but there's also milk and honey. And in the Bible, that's representative of the promised land. I mean, they, this is some slick biblical game they are throwing out right now. The promised land is a language he uses. I'm going to read a bit more, so fasten your seatbelts. Be mature adults about this. Chapter 4 says this. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping the slopes of Gilead. And I'm going to stop you right there. Uh, I've heard other preachers say it this week, so I'm going to say it. Don't take cues from Solomon for your game. All right. None of this stuff is going to translate into 21st century. Don't tell your wife that her hair is like a flock of goats. It won't go well at all. Right? Don't look to this for pointers from Solomon. Chapter 7 says this. Your rounded thighs are like jewels. Nope. Don't use that one. I'm telling you it's not going to go well. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Don't go there. Definitely not that one. Your two breasts are like fawns, twins of a gazelle. That one's not bad, but I know, (laughs) I'm not going to lie, that one's not bad, but I know you're all so very uncomfortable right now, but here's the clincher, and I remember Jay preaching a sermon on sex years back, and I remember myself sitting in the pews feeling deeply uncomfortable with this one. Here's the clincher. Your stature, oh woman, is like a palm tree. (laughs) I, I joke, because I'm, I'm laughing because I remember the, the hand gestures that Ajay was using for that sermon. So I'm going to put my hands down, all right? Your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its cluster. I say, I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. I mean, you're thinking, what is wrong with Solomon, right? He must be some guy. What? Where is his mind going? I mean, he is so vividly talking about this woman, her body, her beauty, all of these things to the point where you feel uncomfortable. People in Philly in 21st century feel uncomfortable with the way that Solomon is talking thousands of years ago, right? And it's surprising for us. Listen, this is, this is erotic, it's sensual, it's sexual, but more than that, right? Don't let the language of it lose the value of what's happening here. It's more than just physical here. This man and woman, they love each other. In fact, if you read more of the book of the Song of Solomon, you see that even the woman in this book, his wife, has insecurities that she herself is dealing with. And what Solomon is trying to do is show her inward beauty and draw that out and then show her exterior beauty and draw that out. And he is affirming her, loving her with every word. He is affirming his wife. It is beautiful. In fact, she feels this love. She feels this love. This is what she says a few verses later in chapter 7. I am my beloved, and his desire is for me. His desire is for me. Her inward beauty, her outward beauty, all of these things with vivid detail he is drawing out of this woman. This man loves her, and this woman loves him. And what does God say about this all? The onlookers in this, in this book are often looked at as, as even God affirming what's happening here. So in chapter 5, verses 1, this is what the onlookers say. Eat, friends. Drink and be drunk with love. You feel that? The, the affirmation of this beautiful, sensual pleasure that this husband and wife are experiencing in this moment. Right? Right? It is shocking. You may be surprised, in fact, to hear that God is actually for our pleasure and for our joy in this way. It might be surprising for you because, listen, when you view a sunset, when you listen to good music, when you are laughing with friends, when you have a good meal or enjoy a good drink, listen, God is not waiting for your pleasure in those moments to end so that he can scold you for enjoying that. Uh, just like sex, he's not waiting at the end of it to say, all right, now let's get on to more spiritual things. Listen, this is spiritual stuff here. This is beautiful, glorious stuff that God looks over it and says, that is good. That is Garden of Eden good. That is good, and you, you partake in that. You enjoy that. You enjoy the pleasure of that. God has given us this as a gift. For your pleasure, God has given even sex. The second truth that we want to say about sex from the Bible is that sex is profound oneness. All right, sex is profound oneness. Let's read from 1 Corinthians six fifteen to 16. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. All right. Paul begins to get into a little bit of more uh, the details of, of sex and sexual relationships. And this is when we will start really not just feeling awkward, but start feeling like we want to push up against what Paul is saying here. What is Paul saying? Another restriction? Another prohibition? Absolutely, actually. That's dead right. And when we hear it today, it sounds controversial. It sounds like something that doesn't jive with our spirit. Uh, he's saying that when it comes to engaging in sexual activity, there's two options, and only two options, marriage and immorality, and that's it. We hear that, and we say, Paul, come on, buddy, that's narrow-minded. Uh, that's so outdated. No one believes that anymore, uh, except for the fact that it wasn't just con- t- controversial right now. It was actually controversial back then as well. Why? Because it was not uncommon at all in that day for a man not just to have a wife, right? He had a wife, but that was much more, it's different from how we consider this today. It, it sort of spoke to social status and, and money and all of that. And she was for sex as well, right? And there was just this complete, complete and utter dehumanization of even that, right? So you had a wife, but not only that, you had a mistress, And she was to be your intellectual stimulation. That's who you had long conversations with and went on a vacation with. And you had sex with her. Not only that, but you had people working at your house, concubines. Not only did they work at your house, but you had sex with them. And then you add in prostitutes. And it was not uncommon for men to have multiple, multiple sexual encounters. And so Paul is saying into this kind of a culture, what is he saying? No no more. There is a new way of sex that is deeper than biology, deeper than appetite, deeper than fulfillment, deeper than culture, right? There is a new way. There is a new sexual ethic that is coming. Uh, Paul was introducing a radical way of thinking about everything, right? There's this historical letter called the letter to Diognetus, It's said of these new Christians in this letter. Listen listen to how people viewed these new Christians. They have a common table, but not a common bed. Right? Listen to this other word from Tertullian. He's an early church father in the Christian church. Hear what he has to say. One in mind and soul. So we do not hesitate to share our earthly goods with one another. We don't hesitate at that. All things are common among us but our wives, right? And this was deeply shocking for this culture because the pagans, those who didn't know God or trust in God, follow God, the pagans held on to their wealth and possessions. They they hoarded it. They kept it for themselves, right? But they freely shared their beds. They freely shared their bodies and sex. And so now you have these Christians coming along and they were generous with their wealth. They were generous with their possessions, but... They held tightly to their sexual encounters. They held tightly to their sexual bed. And so it was complete literally the opposite of how the world thought in this moment. And here's what Paul is getting at. A pastor named Tim Keller puts it way better than I could, so I'm going to quote him. Paul is getting at here that whole body commitment must go along with whole life commitment. Whole body commitment must go along with whole life commitment. What do we mean by that? What we mean by that is that there is never, there there is never, that's what Paul is showing us in this passage. There is never total intimacy without total commitment in, in what's actually happening. In the biblical sex ethic, there is not a separation of soul and then body. Right? You can't do one thing with your body and it not affect your soul. Paul is saying here, don't you know, don't you know that when you unite your body with another, it's actually not just physical. It's not just body. It's a union of the flesh. It's spiritual. It's emotional union where the two become one flesh. There's depth there. There's union there. And Paul is trying to tell us sex is not just about physical nakedness where you take off your clothes and you're naked before one another. It's actually whole life nakedness. It is whole life oneness. You are being united to one another. And the tragedy of our world is that we have flipped it. We'll say, I'll give you my body, but I won't commit myself to you wholly. Right? We're saying have my body, have your way with it but I'm not going to commit my life to you. And there's such a loss of value. We can become physically one with someone in our bodies, but not legally, not economically, not socially, not emotionally. And We restrict the parts that are deep within us, and we consider the body to be just, it's it's fine, it's just sex. And this need to satisfy, right, our appetites, our experience, our sexual fulfillment, separated from commitment, proves, let's be honest, it proves to be unloving. It's incoherent. It's actually self-serving. It hurts, and it wounds, and it makes us the center of life. When God, in fact, makes sex an act of radical sacrifice, uh, Tim Keller calls it a radical self-donation, where you give yourself to someone so deeply, not just your body, but your whole life, everything about you, not just your body. We've said it here before, sex can be likened to fireworks, right? Right? When done rightly and in the right hands, it's glorious. Uh, Fireworks are spectacular. They're beautiful to look at and witness. When handled improperly, it can destroy you. It can mar you. It can really cause havoc. Uh, Friends, would you hear in love, it's in love that God warns you of sexual immorality. To say no to pornography that dehumanizes us. To say no to fornication and adultery that wounds us from within and wounds others. To say no to any sexual expression outside of marriage between man and wife because the thing was never meant to exist that way. And God is saying in love, God is showing us the way of sex that leads to deep joy, to deep intimacy, to song of Solomon-like ecstasy that is pure and and delightful and good. And God looks over that and says, that is good. A fish may desire to come up out of the water and go on dry ground, right? But his, his desire is going to prove his end. The fish is most safe is most alive, is most awakened to who he is when he's in the water. And he'll die outside of it. Here in God's love, that you are not free outside of the bounds that he has placed for you for sex. You're not. No matter what the world will tell us, it destroys us. It ruins us. All right? So we have these two truths that we're holding. One, that that sex is good. And the other, that sex is profound oneness. God has this immense and glorious vision for what sex is. That it's good, it's right, it's pleasurable, and that it also carries with it profound oneness. That is mysterious. But hear this. In light of those truths being absolutely true and right, hold that up high. There are two tensions in the Bible that it draws out concerning sex, even concerning what we've just said. Hear from 1 Corinthians 7, 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Do you hear that? Do you know what he's done there? Uh, Paul drops the bomb and says what? Sex is awesome. But sex is not ultimate. Sex is wonderful, but sex is not ultimate. Whereas we can run with the beauty of sex as right and good, we'll say amen to the first half. Absolutely, and we should. We should amen it. But Paul puts on the brakes before we go too far and draws out this first tension. He says sex is glorious, but listen, it is absolutely not ultimate. Paul is answering this question perhaps you might have had in your own heart, are you saying, he's he's answering this question, are you saying that unless I'm married, since sex is only proper and holy within marriage, are you saying that unless I'm married, my life will never be fulfilled or complete? That's the question that Paul is seeking to answer here. Uh, No sex? Could that actually be good? Uh, Could that actually be right? after we've painted this brilliant, glorious picture of sex, right? And, and Paul is saying yes. God is saying yes. Uh, we absolutely hear that and scoff at the idea. Because romantic love, right, sexual pursuits, they're of highest value, they're of ultimate worth. Our world and culture elevates this thing above everything else. Uh, we do it in the world, and, To be honest, we do it in the church, right? Everything becomes about this. But guess what? Did the hearers of Paul hear this differently, right? The hearers of Paul heard this in one sense, very similarly, though different. It's one thing, okay? It's one thing to say uh, that sex is only within marriage. Uh, Because if that's true, at least there's hope for sex. You You have to get married, and then you can have sex. Easier said than done. But then Paul says this, it's good not to have sex, right? So not only does he say sex is to be within marriage, but even if you don't get married and not have sex, it is good not to have sex. Into a society, hear this into a society that is defined by family and lineage and descendants, and all of your hope and pride is built up in this thing. It's into this kind of a culture that Paul says, it is good to have sex, but it's quite all right if you don't. It was shocking for them to hear this. It was countercultural. It was offensive. Paul goes on to say in verses 27 to 31, hear this, Are you bound to a wife? And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. What is Paul saying here? It sounds confusing, right? He's sort of elevating marriage and then says, almost live as if you don't have a wife, right? Live in the world as if you don't have its joys and mornings. It's almost as if Paul is trying to give us perspective. Paul is trying to pull us back. And show us perspective here. What is Paul saying? He's saying that life, your life and mine, is not ultimately about a husband. It's not ultimately about a wife or getting engaged or having a boyfriend or a girlfriend. It's not about having a kid. It's not about sexuality. It's not about rejoicing. It's not about moments of sadness. It's not about possessions and wealth. He is saying here comprehensively, ultimately, the Bible paints this high view of sexuality than any other religion, but then Paul is saying here, listen, they're not ultimate. They, they, they are not ultimate. And here's what he says following this. He says that we are free from the need of sex more than anyone, more than any other religion, more than any other world view. Paul is saying that we are freed from this, this need for sex. Why? He says it in the second half of verse 31. He says, For the present form of this world is passing away. Right? For the Christian, regardless of your status, whatever your status, regardless of your station in life, your circumstances in life, wherever you find yourself, Paul here, while he's talking about marriage and sex, is painting this vision that for the Christian, there is a life-shaping, comprehensive hope in God that is not bound by this passing world. And you've got to hear that. This doesn't just apply to sex. It applies to everything. But very much so, it applies to sex. But what this does is, it doesn't actually denigrate sex and push it down. This actually elevates sex even higher, right? How is that possible? Because sex is not meant to be ultimate or to be final. It's not meant to be the thing that gives us absolute satisfaction. It is pointing to something better, to something greater, to something that's not temporal and passing, something that is eternal. Listen, we're Christians. We believe in Jesus and the gospel. If our sexuality is supposed to be informed by the gospel, would you consider with me for a moment of what Christ has done? What has Jesus done? Isn't he the one who lost his independence? Who gave up himself? He came into this world. He emptied himself fully for us. Jesus didn't hold back. He didn't say, I'm going to give you one thing, but not all of this. He didn't fail. He sacrificed his very body. Why? Listen, he did all of those things for the very reason he's asking us to do this in the context of marriage. That we might have ultimate and the most profound oneness with him. He gave his life so that you and I could be one with him. That's what sex points to. That's what a biblical, beautiful, Glorious view of sex points to a relationship, a oneness, a unity with him that is not limited by time, one that is eternal. And if you begin to think about sex the way that God intended, all of the ecstasy in it, all of the pleasure in it, all of the beauty, all of the delight in it, Is but a, I mean, a fraction, a dim, dim, dim reflection of the infinite joy and pleasure that we will one day experience when we fall into the arms of our Savior Jesus Christ into eternity. Sex is a small, small pointer, all right? So, sex is good, sex is profound oneness, sex is not ultimate. That's the tension, and then a second tension, and then we'll, we'll wrap up soon. The second tension that the Bible draws out for us, and to be honest, just life draws up for us, the conclusions that we can draw, is that sex exists in a broken world. It's within a broken world that this whole thing exists, right? It exists in a world that says all of this outdated stuff that we've just talked about, all of this religious jargon It's not important. It's actually not the way it is. It exists in a world that says, feast until you are full here. Feast until your appetite is satisfied. The irony is it will never be satisfied. But the lie is that sex exists in a world that says, feast, 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 all the while realizing, not realizing that you're going to miss the ultimate feast as you seek, as I seek to devour this world and all of the sexual appetite in it. Sex exists in a world where we seek our own satisfaction and we trample and dehumanize other people to get it. Sex exists in a world where our own sexual experiences haunt us, right? Sins that we've committed, addictions today that we can't seem to break, sins that have been done against us, sins that we have committed. Friends, I'm there, right? I don't necessarily look at my past or my life right now with great, great joy because I see brokenness, I see weakness, I see struggle, I experience shame, I fight temptation when it comes to all of this with you. How badly, right, that picture if you remember of Eden, the garden, how badly do you desire, I know I do, to return there? where there's glory and beauty and purity and joy and delight and goodness, unsullied by the brokenness and sin of this world. How badly do we desire that? Sin exists in the world, and so sex within this world is broken. And it's tragic. So in light of all of this brokenness, does God do anything now? I don't even mean a billion years from now. Does God do anything now? There's a story that we've said here at Seven Mile Road before, and I think it's valuable for us to hear it again. Uh, There's a pastor out in Texas who shared the story of a preacher uh, that he was hearing. This pastor decided to visit another church. He was sitting in the pew and hearing this other preacher on a Sunday morning preach about sex, the very thing that we're preaching today. And so as this preacher was preaching, this pastor in the pew is thinking to himself, this is the worst exposition of Scripture This is the worst handling of this subject I've ever heard. And this this preacher is talking and pulling out one thing after another, hoping that guilt will prove enough to call people to to morality and to call people to not go to sin. And so one after the other, this, this preacher is going to town, people feeling the weight of this, this preacher in the pews feeling anger as he hears this. And what this preacher on the stage does is, before his sermon even begins... He takes out a rose, a red rose, holds it up, smells it, sees the color of it, the brightness of it. And before the sermon begins, he starts passing it around, asks the congregation to pass this rose around to every single person, right? And so as this rose is, pa- rose is passing around the congregation, the pastor goes on in his sermon, he continues to preach. And then at the end of his sermon, he asks for the rose back, right? And a little boy comes and gives him the rose and the, and the pastor looks at this rose after it's been through the hands of hundreds of people, mangled, no longer bright red, limping, leaves fallen off. You can no longer recognize it as a rose. And the preacher said, look at this rose. Who would want this rose? Look at how broken it is. Hoping that it will inspire people to To flee sin. He says, Look at this rose. Who would want this rose? And this pastor who was sitting in the pews was saying, It took everything in me to not shout out in anger and response, Jesus! Jesus wants that rose. That's why he came. Do you think that Jesus came for perfect roses that have never been broken? If so, he wouldn't have come for anybody. Jesus comes into this world for us. For us who have been marred. For us who struggle in sin, especially sexual sin. For us who have sinned and have been sinned against. Jesus does not toss away the rose, he says, I'll take the rose. He says, I'll take the rose. It's for that reason that I came into the world. I came into the world to save sinners. He came into the world for sinful people like us who are marred. Jesus has come, dear friends, for even our sexual brokenness. As we wrap up, what are we trying to say about sex? If I could say it just in a sentence, if it's helpful, here's how I would say it. Sex... Is a glorious act between husband and wife that dimly reflects our ultimate and future pleasure in Jesus. Listen again, yes, sex is good, it's glorious, it's intoxicating, it carries profound oneness between husband and wife. Enjoy it, I'm telling you, enjoy it, pursue it without guilt. Without passion, with, with passion, with love, with honor, pursue it. It is good. But as you do so, and as you think about it even in this moment, would you remember that sex is not ultimate? It's just not. It's simply a pointer. It's only a dim reflection of Jesus who is good. It's a dim reflection of Jesus who has lost his independence and has given up his own life to make himself one with us. It points to Jesus who satisfies us, whereas no other fountain that we could go to ever would, that would leave us thirsty. It's about Jesus who, when all things pass away, including the great wonder of marriage and sex, will be the eternal and ultimate and highest joy and pleasure our hearts need and receive a billion years after this one. God, Jesus Christ is our ultimate pleasure, is our ultimate joy. He is our ultimate delight. Believe that. And would you, would you block out all of the, thing that, that are, all the things that our world tells us, perhaps even that churches say, listen to God's word, listen to Jesus. He is preeminent. He is, he is everything. Put your trust in Jesus. So this day, Listen, here's an opportunity. If you do have kids, wouldn't it be great if this is the picture of sex that your kids had as they grow up? This day, if you're nine years old or 90 years old, whether you're single, whether you are in a relationship, married, divorced, or widowed, or some other station in life that you find yourself in, whether you have committed sexual sins or have experienced them, this day, find all that you need in Jesus Christ. He is the lover, the healer, the redeemer of your soul and mine. Find rest, find joy, find pleasure in him today. Let's pray. Our Lord, how thankful we are that in the brokenness of sexual sin, we are not counted out. We're not considered unworthy because if we put our hope and trust in Christ, we realize that, Jesus, you've come for us who are unworthy, but you make us, through your righteousness, worthy to come before God. You make us righteous, O oh God. You, O oh God, have taken this thing, sex. You've created it to be good. Sin has come in, O oh God, and we, we have taken it and created it to be all kinds of things that's not. And so you, O oh God, and coming into the world, are redeeming all things, including this. And so would we plunge ourselves into the work that you are doing, not only in the world, but in us, You're rede- redeeming us, you are sanctifying us, you are making us holy, and you are preparing for us on that final day for eternity, a better hope, a more permanent stay, a deeper and infinitely more enjoyable pleasure in Jesus Christ. And so we pray that even as we consider sex, we pray that we would have a high view of it. And yet, God, we pray that you would be higher than all else in this world for us. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen.